This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Heaven, the hope of our souls. Welcome to the Return to Order Moment. As this podcast goes live, we are on the verge of one of the most exceptional days in the church year. The ascension of our Lord into heaven 40 days after Easter. At this point, our Lord's earthly mission is complete. It is time for Him to return to His Father in heaven. The ascension fills us with hope. All believers base their lives around a desire that their souls will eventually follow our Lord into heaven. Mr. Gustavo Salomeo spoke of this hope in his essay published in Crusade magazine in March-April 2005, titled simply, Heaven, the Hope of Our Souls. Hope is to man as the water that quenches his thirst. Without the latter, his body dies. Without the former, life becomes meaningless. When man despairs, he may attempt against his own life, give himself over to vices, or rebel by spiritual suicide. Where hope dwindles, so does the light of virtue while the dark attraction of vice for the abyss increases. Still, deep in his soul, man feels that no matter how desperate or inescapable the circumstances, there is reason to hope. Our thirst for justice, truth, harmony, and endless happiness cannot be a lie, because this thirst was placed in our souls by God, and God lieth not. See Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Amid the great trials that come our way, the very thought of eternal happiness and of heaven restore our hope. Over and above all, our conversation is in heaven. See Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. The thought of heaven is a beacon lighting the way of every Christian life, pointing to the end of our existence, giving reason for virtue, resignation in suffering, courage to fight, heroism even unto offering our own lives if need be. In short, it is only when we turn our eyes to heaven that the shadows of this earth retreat giving way to confidence and joy. There is no greater satisfaction on this earth than of knowing and loving, which is a logical result of our rational nature and free will. Thus, we seek to know people, to know delightful panoramas, to know God's reflections in the universe, to know the laws that govern the universe, and to know the reason for existence. And, as a consequence of this knowledge, we seek to admire, enjoy, and become one with the object that we have come to know. In short, we seek to love. In heaven, our thirst to know, to love, and be loved will be fulfilled beyond what is possible on this earth because it will take on infinite dimensions, for God's knowledge is the essence of heaven. Quote, now this is life everlasting, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
See St. John chapter 17, verse 3. This is called the beatific vision because it is a direct and intuitive knowledge of God which is captured through the symbols and veils of faith instead of earthly knowledge. With characteristic clarity, St. Paul teaches, In this life we walk by faith and not by sight. See 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. And we see God through a glass in an obscure manner, but then in heaven we will see him face to face. Now I know God in part, but then I shall know him as I am known. See 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. So as to be able to understand the beatific vision, we receive in heaven a special grace called Lumen Gloriae, the light of glory, which perfects sanctifying grace in us and elevates our intelligence so as to make it suitable for the intuitive vision of God himself. Thus, faith, which is proper to the earth, is substituted by the beatific vision, which is proper to heaven. It is not possible to have knowledge of God in the beatific vision's degree and intensity without loving him. For God is love. See 1 John 4, verse 8. By participating in his essence through the intuitive knowledge, we participate in this love, which is his very nature. St. John clarifies this truth when he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we may be called and should be the sons of God. Dearly beloved, we are now the sons of God. It has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like to him, because we shall see him as he is. See 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Heaven is a place created by God for his glory and that of all angels and men who are saved. Thus, having made the earth a place of exile so full of beauty, could he have made heaven any less? Evidently not. After the universal resurrection, our body, united to our soul and in a state of perfection, will participate in the happiness of the elect, as the patient and holy Job said from his pains and sorrows, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and in the last day I shall rise out of the earth, and I shall be clothed again with my skin, and in my flesh I shall see my God, whom I myself shall see, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My hope is laid up in my bosom. See Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Therefore, in heaven, after the final resurrection, we will have our bodies. Though spiritualized, they will be truly our bodies with all its organs, limbs, and senses. The eyes will delight in all that is beautiful. 
the nose in delicious perfumes, the ears in harmonious sounds, the palate in the various tastes, the tact in all that is delicate and soft. All of this will be added to the uninterrupted ecstasies of God's presence, because nothing in heaven can detract from the spiritual rapture of the continuous beatific vision. The first Christians had an idea of paradise, both ethereal and real. They saw it as a garden of singing birds and gurgling fountains, infused with delicious perfumes, where flowers never wilted and trees were evergreen. Such a concept expresses the idea of a happiness that is always new. Murals in the catacombs, for example, in the cemetery of St. Calixtus in Rome, depict the blessed under shady trees, amid flowers, doves, and birds. Joy and happiness are everywhere. Burial inscriptions on the tombs of the first Christians allude to the hope of future happiness. An inscription in Via Albani, A.D. 380, states, quote, Eternal rest and happiness, unquote. An inscription in the cemetery of St. Hermes promises in peace and comfort. And a Roman inscription from the 4th century tells us, In heaven there are wonderful fragrances. The grass is always green as on the edge of streams. Thus, we may ask if paradise has trees, flowers, fruits, streams, and birds as the first Christians pictured in the catacombs and as we read in so many private revelations, or if, on the contrary, all of this is merely symbolic. Though Revelation does not address it, the great theologians and doctors of the Church have tried to raise the veil of this mystery by using comparisons and analogies. One of their objections in relation to the existence of plants and animals in heaven is that there can be no corruption there, for all of organic life such as plants and animals is corruptible. Therefore, How could their existence be reconciled with the incorruptibility proper to heaven? One of the hypotheses would be that as human bodies will, after the resurrection, be rendered miraculously incorruptible, God could work a similar miracle in regard to animals and plants. Either that or, instead of using corruptible matter, God could make the trees, flowers, and fruits of heavenly paradise of precious stones, thereby making them more perfect and wonderful as we read in some private revelations. God, in his infinite magnanimity and magnificence, does nothing sparingly, but rewards in a kingly manner with the liberality of the Creator of all things. Why couldn't he have arranged for heaven to have wonderful gardens, delightful birds, beautiful animals, multicolored butterflies for the innocent enjoyment of the elect? God could also preserve them from deterioration. Quote, I will kill and I will make to live. I will strike and I will heal. See Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 39. 
Why shouldn't all that is most beautiful on earth have a much more perfect representation in our heavenly home? We see nothing in this supposition that may contradict revelation or natural reason. Of course, nothing can be compared to the happiness of the beatific vision. But without ever leaving it, such attentions of God toward his faithful children are proper to his infinite love and would be for the elect a compliment to the joy and happiness resulting from the contemplation of uncreated beauty who is God. In numerous private revelations, such as those of St. John Bosco, seem to confirm these hypotheses. Likewise, texts of fathers and doctors of the Church allude to this. Thus, St. Ephrates, father of the Syrian Church of the 4th century, writes, quote, Heaven will receive us in all of the magnificence of its glories, It is a place of light, life, and grace. The air of these sublime regions will be infinitely light and sweet as is proper for glorious resurrected bodies. It will emit dazzling rays, splendid and pleasing to the eye. An eternal spring will cover the marvelous evergreen trees planted by the Lord with fruit." In this blessed place, our sight will also delight with the radiance that will emanate from the glorious bodies. The transfiguration of our Lord before Saints Luke, Mark, and Matthew is a sample of the glory of a resurrected body. Quote, After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John his brother and brought them up to a high mountain apart, and he was transfigured before them. And his face did shine like the sun, and his garments became white as snow. See Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 to 2. See also Mark chapter 9 verses 1 to 2, and Luke chapter 9 verses 28 to 29. One of the conclusions that St. Robert Bellarmine draws from the radiance that glorious bodies will have is that light will envelop their bodies in the manner of robes as in the earthly paradise. Quote, If Adam and Eve in the terrestrial paradise had no need of clothes, much less will the saints in the celestial paradise where their robes will be their own light. Unquote. One of the most repeated scenes in the depictions of heaven is that of heavenly banquets. The Savior himself often compared heaven to a marriage feast. See Luke chapter 14, verse 16, chapter 22, verses 29 to 30, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14, and chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. He affirmed, And as I assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. See Luke chapter 22, verses 29 to 30. Can we thus conclude that in heaven we shall eat and drink, delighting our palate with heavenly victuals and refreshments? It would seem not if we listen to St. Paul, quote, 
For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but of justice and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. See Romans chapter 14, verse 17. On the other hand, if we remember the aforementioned principle that in heaven there can be no corruption, there could not be eating in paradise, since eating would involve the whole physiological process of eliminating what the body does not use. Moreover, the resurrected bodies would no longer have the need to renew their strength by means of food consumption, as they spend no energy. On the contrary, St. Robert Bellarmine argues, quote, It is certain that scriptures, with the metaphor of the banquet, expresses the concept of enjoyment and pleasure, unless we were to deny that there is enjoyment and pleasure in eating. Unquote. And in another text he says, quote, As to the sense of the palate, Theologians write that the blessed in heaven will not consume mortal nourishment. Still, it seems that they will have some type of pleasure of the palate so as not to render this sense superfluous. Unquote. Still, St. Robert Bellarmine attaches only a spiritual significance to heavenly food. In addition, it seems to us that St. Robert Bellarmine's interpretation is complemented by Father Guglielmo Luigi Rossi, the eminent scholar who studied heavenly paradise. Father Rossi does not separate the spiritual aspect from the material aspect of nourishment. Quote, Thankfully, the Lord does not refrain from making the senses capable of feeling awesome delights. Different from corruptibility that in time, wears out the senses, almost reducing them to naught in old age, the senses of a glorious body have an astounding potency and efficacy. Objects whose beauty, musicality, fragrance, taste, and feel are transformed by the supernatural gratify the eyes, hearing, sense of smell, taste, and touch, beyond what we could possibly imagine on earth, and the images have a maximum effect on the sensitive appetites. Quote, My heart and my flesh have rejoiced in the living God. See Psalm 83, verse 3, unquote. In this manner, for example, a beautiful and delectable fruit in paradise will, without us consuming it, work on our palate as the sensation of a delicious yet modest flavor. As we look at it, it acts upon our imagination, which, in turn, stimulates the sensory glands of the palate, producing the sensation of taste. In this way, despite not being nourished as we understand it, we feel a taste on the palate that is much superior to anything we ever tasted on earth. At the same time, this sensible pleasure will be linked to a spiritual gift, a grace that will open to our understanding new aspects of divine wisdom. The same could be said in relation to drink. According to Ecclesiasticus, Wine taken with sobriety is equal life to men. If you drink it moderately, you shall be sober. 
What is his life who is diminished with wine? See Ecclesiasticus chapter 31 verses 32 to 33. Thus, we may suppose that in heaven there will be drinks that by the same process described above will cause a greater pleasure than any wine on earth. As to the sense of touch, contrary to the lewd conceptions of Muslims, Greeks, and Romans of antiquity and other pagans, there is no carnal pleasure in heaven. The sexual instinct will cease, given that humanity will be complete after the resurrection of the bodies. According to the Savior, quote, For when they shall rise again from the dead, they shall neither marry nor be married, but are as angels in heaven. See St. Mark chapter 12, verse 25. In heaven, there will not be the least unruliness of sensuality, as our appetites will be perfectly subject to reason and this to the love of God. But other tactile pleasures will remain. In fact, in another line of inquiry, we could ask, when St. Thomas touched the wounds of our divine Savior, see St. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29, if he felt unspeakable physical and spiritual pleasure. Maybe the blessed in heaven will also have the privilege of touching the Redeemer's holy wounds, as well as the glorious scars of the martyrs with the same blessed results. Our instinct of sociability will be realized fully in heaven in the joy of mingling with the blessed. Many think that this conviviality will be much like an assembly of people, standing side by side with no contact between them, absorbed in the ecstatic contemplation of a distant God. On the contrary, one of the joys of heaven will be precisely the meeting of relatives, friends, and acquaintances who have been saved and with whom we are able to remember episodes of this life or go over shared events on earth that only then, in the light of glory, we will understand fully. Who knows? Perhaps we will also establish new friendships with persons toward whom we may feel a special affinity rooted in origins, inclination, or vocation. We will certainly know and talk with the saints for whom we had a particular devotion, whom we invoked more frequently, and who interceded for us, or those whose virtues we most admired and whose example moved us. Ultimately, we will meet the holy angels, especially our own guardian angel, our caring friend, zealous protector, and faithful companion of our earthly journey, who witnessed our struggles, falls, and repentance. This conviviality will be joyous, never disturbed by the disagreements, envies, and intrigues that often rendered our life on earth miserable. We may also suppose that the liturgical feasts pertaining to canonized saints and which are celebrated here on earth have a repercussion in heaven, thus augmenting the accidental glory of the saints and all the joy of the blessed. In short, Though these considerations may help us to understand heaven better, we must ultimately remember that what God has prepared for us 
as St. Paul states, will surpass all imagination. Quote, The eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. See 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, and Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. This concludes our Ascension podcast, Heaven, the Hope of Our Souls, by Gustavo Salomeo. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our programs in two ways. The first is to subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. As we pointed out earlier, this essay was first published in the TFP's Crusade magazine. A free one-year subscription to this important publication is available by calling 888-317-5571. That telephone number will also be found in the show notes. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website www.returntoorder.org or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.